your your heart goes out to these families and your heart goes out to anyone who who knew any of these victims personally like the governor and 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 all the other folks and it just i just the real question is is what do we do from here you know i just i feel like we're just having a crisis of the of the soul honestly Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Big Flyover Country podcast with Kevin Grout, Sean Souther, Jared Crawford, and Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold, and we have a lot of political things to talk about tonight, but we have to start, Scott, tonight, and I say tonight because we're recording this about 10, 15 on Wednesday, April 12th, Scott came off the CNN set maybe about half an hour, 45 minutes ago, right after the interview with Governor Andy Bashir in the wake of a tragedy that has been talked about across the country, but right here in Louisville, where, we're, where, we, where we live, where we record this show. And, of course, we're talking about the uh, the mass shooting of uh, at Old National Bank, five people, five innocent victims there. Um, uh, dying as a result of a, an assailant there. And, and, and Scott, first of all, the governor, Andy Bashir speaking for all of Kentucky uh, and on the, on the broadcast with Caitlin Collins there tonight. And that's, that's his role. And I appreciated your comments as well. You've known him for a long time. Just overall here, you know, to tell us about the role of the governor and about uh, Andy Bashir's performance here. Yeah, um, I was on with with Caitlin as you mentioned. She got an exclusive interview with Governor Bashir. She actually came to Louisville uh, today, Wednesday, to to talk to him, and then uh, she and I flew back on the same flight actually this evening to, to get to the set for the nine o'clock show. I was really, um, I really felt for Governor Bashir. I, you know, we obviously have been on opposite sides of Kentucky politics for our entire life. We're both almost the exact same age, forty five. Um, you know, he's been a, a Democrat. I've been a Republican. We've, we've been on the opposite, opposite sides of just about everything, but obviously, um, watching someone sort of emotionally, uh, uh, reckon with having lost a close friend and someone, um, simultaneously doing that as a, just as a person. And then also, as you pointed out, Joe, having to, you know, speak for the state, I mean, it, it's a lot. And so my heart uh, goes out to Governor Bashir and, and his family and the Elliott family, all the families involved. You know, he said one thing in his interview that really struck me, and that was he even said, you know, even though this person, you know, murdered my friend, I, I can't help but think what his family must be thinking right now, how they must be feeling. I mean, and, and what what struck me about that was just the number of lives here that are never going to be the same. Obviously, you had the victims of the shooting, but then, you know, you listen to 911 calls, all the people who witnessed it and that were in the room or the, or the poor lady was watching it on, on the Zoom. Um, you've got the family of the shooter. You've got um, everybody, you know, that, that was connected to that bank somehow and, and, you know, had worked with those people. You've got the cop, you know, the hero cop who got shot in the head who's still recovering and, and, and trying to come back. You just think about the ripple effect of these things and the number of lives that are that are impacted. So I, I think the governor was was doing a good job, frankly, of, of managing his own personal, you know, grieving uh, for his friend while simultaneously talking about, you know, what we're going through as a community. I, I mean, I, I pointed this out on the show. And, and Jared, I know you've been active on these topics. Th- this particular violence is different than what we're usually dealing with. At I mean. This is a strange case. Most of the violence we're usually dealing with is is gangs and drugs and 
street violence and, and sort of individual homicides. In fact, I, as I pointed out, there was a homicide going on a few blocks away while this mass shooting was going on. Uh, and you hate to call it mundane or sort of day-to-day violence, but but Louisville, I tell you, I, I just most, po- most folks I've talked to this week, I mean, they're just, no one knows what to do, no one knows what to say, and no one knows really how to feel about the idea that we live in a city that has just become one of the most violent places in America. It's crazy. Yeah, more than more than forty homicides now in, in Louisville, Jared. And of course, you've yeah. you cover this and from a policy standpoint, looking into all these kind of things. Yeah, I, I do think that's one of the tough parts of this is is even as more information comes out, you're, you're still left with the sort of why and how and could we have done these sorts of things? Uh, Louisville obviously has has you know had a, a spike in violence as as Scott mentioned. We went for a city that I think. You know, 1980 to 2014, we're talking 50 homicides a year, and since 2014, averaging close to 120 homicides a year. Uh, didn't have a year from the 80s on where we had over 80 homicides, and we haven't had a year where we had less than 80 homicides. And so, I think there is this sense that, you know, you know, what are the police doing? What are, what is our community doing? Are we do we have the right resources to deal with these sorts of things? And then you you, you add in you know, this mass public shooting, which from a policy perspective is a little bit different, but I think strikes again, that tone of, is this a safe city? What can we be doing? Are our leaders doing enough? Are are the policies that we've been pushing for working? And, and I think, you know, you, you feel lost sometimes of, of what we can do. And, and I think that makes uh, this, this very hard to deal with. And, and the community, I think has this sense now that uh, we're kind of grieving together and trying to figure out a pathway forward. Kevin. And I don't, I don't think this conversation can go anywhere without, you know, recognizing the heroism of the LMPD and the officers on the scene. They responded, I think everyone said, within three minutes of getting the call. Um, obviously, Officer Wilk is still in critical condition at the hospital. You know, we're all praying for his speedy recovery. Um, but but this is this is the kind of response you want from your police force. And I know LMPD has gotten its lumps, and there's a con- that's a conversation for another day. But I think this week everyone is – is grateful for these brave men and women in uniform who who do something you know the rest of us don't want to do every day, and uh, they do it really really heroically. You know, Kevin, on the on the that point about about the police here, um, Joe, you pointed out your your opening. You know, this obviously is being covered nationally. I mean, the last time the nation was talking about the Louisville Police Department, it was about the Department of Justice report. You know, that came out following the Breonna Taylor case. And so you, know, you think about these officers and, and what they're dealing with in the wake of this shooting and what they're dealing with on a daily basis. But the most recent attention they got was really negative. And, uh, and now, uh, um, Kevin, I, I thank you for what you said, because I think we're seeing that vast majority of these cops, most of them, nearly all of them, are running into the line of fire, running into danger to, to protect people and to save people and, and putting themselves on the line. And so, you know, that, that, that whole issue with how we think of our own police department in Louisville is, in and of itself is, is, you know, I think Louisville's grappling with that right now. And, and both, both in terms of uh, what we just found out a few weeks ago and, and, and what we know today. So e- even that to me is a whole layer of complexity here about how we process this thing and, and how we think about policy moving forward. Sean? Yeah, I mean, I just want to echo what everyone else has said. I think that it's – there's just this sense with this particular event and, and a couple other events that have happened recently in our community. It just kind of feels like the world is 
spinning out of control. Um, at least our little slice of it here is just kind of spinning out of control beyond. Like we don't know. And, and we've all been through uh, in the last few years through the pandemic and everything else. It just seems like there's a lot of turmoil and, and in the world. And uh, this, this certainly is the latest example of a tur- turmoil here in our community. And I think um, one thing that, that I was particularly struck by is the doctor, uh, Dr. Jason Smith with U of L hospital, who got a little bit of media attention uh, overseeing some of the, the, medical response to this and the hospital taking care of the the officers and some of the other victims. And he made this comment uh, that said that, you know, caring for these three shooting victims plus the others that came in is not an infrequent occurrence uh, for them. And, you know, the, the event, he, he was very clear to say the event that happened made it much more difficult. Um, but that it, he he's been in Louisville for 15 years and this is just, it's kind of becoming more normal to expect this level of violence in our community. And, and that's just a sad commentary on the state of affairs. And I just, your, your heart goes out to these families and your heart goes out to anyone who, who knew any of these victims personally, like the governor and, and, and all the other folks. And it just, I just, the real question is, is what do we do from here? You know, I just, I feel like we're just having a crisis of the, of the soul, honestly. Yeah, I think, um, I, I, sorry, I I think, I think Sean, you know, when you think about this shooter and what we know about him, you know, young guy, obviously had a mental health crisis, something happened that snapped him, um, into just a terrible moment. And, you know, he live streamed it. You know, that, that I can't get out of my mind. I mean, we don't know tonight as we record this what was in the suicide note or some of the other writings that he may have left behind for his family. But we know he live streamed it. And so, I mean, think about that sort of toxic brew of, of a mental health crisis, uh, some professional disappointment he may have, you know, been encountering uh, combined with just that, you know, there, there just seems to be there seems to be this desire uh, for attention even even at the moment where you're trying to commit suicide by committing violence, I mean, it, I don't know. I don't even know how how you even begin to cure that as a society, given given how society works today. And uh, and so I'm. It's just stunning. I mean, it, it seems like he was trying to commit suicide, and instead of committing suicide alone, he went and decided to murder people and and stream it. And it just, I mean. It's hard for me to fathom how you get from being, you know, what most people thought of as a relatively normal, you know, up and coming person to that particular moment where you make that set of decisions. It just it just seems unfathomable. It is a symptom, I believe, of something far greater to your as you're suggesting, Scott, in terms of that toxic brew is a good way of putting it. I, I and I do think it's important for us. I've heard different schools of thought and different people saying that well, them. You know, the, the motive doesn't matter. I think the motive does matter. I think it's important for criminologists and psychologists and you know, other uh, health professionals to have a better understanding so we can prevent these kind of things from happening again or perhaps seeing warning signs for other people who are in this kind of distress before they act out and, and, and cause so much tragedy for other people. I One other point I wanted to bring up 
and this goes to your point, all of your points about the police, but not just police, but everyone who is continuing to function. Because, Johnny, you're right about I think all of us somewhat feel paralyzed. And feel, I was talking to, talking to Jerry tonight when I first came in. I said, I just don't feel good. I just don't feel right. I, I you know, I, I think we not, not not that this show is going to, you know, you know, is the most important thing that any of us are going to do all week long. But but there's a lot of people such as police. And frankly, the follow up to this, it's one thing about the police who performed under pressure and under fire, literally in that moment. But even and we talked about this after the Nashville tragedy with the school shooting, the amount of transparency and um, I think this factual and and uh, sober response to this by the city here and by the police department, I think is admirable. And I want to compliment them as well, because obviously there's heroism that happened first. Let's hope for some competence as well as this continues to happen here. I think that the it's difficult to hear and 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 to recount with you know as far as like those 911 calls the body cam videos surveillance videos that are being put out there but the fact that they are being transparent Jared I think is is is, is an important uh, bar for us to continue to meet yeah I, I I think uh Deputy Chief Humphrey I believe is who's done a lot of these uh press conferences for LMPD and I think you know to your point has done a really commendable job laying out the facts and providing the public with the information that they they either need or in some ways maybe deserve uh, uh, on this. And, and yeah, I mean, again, I think we, we talked about this in, in Nashville and, you know, whether having more information helps us to that, you know, that policy solution that we've all been looking for, or just helps us sort of realize that there, this is a crisis here, are the signs to look for, right? If you have a friend who, or, or a roommate or somebody, you know, it's at school, the more that we can know. And, and again, I think as individuals, as a community, look to try to prevent these in some way. You know, if there's something we can do with the information that we've been given, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that, that we can look to try to prevent these. This is all happening, of course, in the backdrop of um, other things happening in, in the world. And and uh, and we, we certainly are going to all continue to pray for and think of everyone affected here Um so I appreciate all of your comments, guys. I do want to talk about uh, flyover country and some of the other things that are happening. As I mentioned, the backdrop of uh, the governor's race continuing here in Kentucky. In fact, later on this week, I believe on Friday, uh, you're stay tuned here for flyover country because the mayor of Somerset, Kentucky, Alan Keck, will be our special guest. The first of what we hope to be uh, a series of interviews with uh, candidates for uh, governor. This is for those folks listening from outside of Kentucky. We have an off-year election, so there is a race this fall. Andy Bashir, the presumed Democratic nominee, and there are 12 candidates, I believe, on the Republican side. Actually, there's been, uh, Scott, some movement, or not movement, I guess, but there's been some action, you know, this week in uh, on the on the campaign front. Uh, Kelly Craft and, and her PAC, uh, I say her PAC, meaning a, a separate PAC that has been supporting her, um, have really kind of occupied all of the airspace up until now. But now we have some 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 new action happening here. Yeah, um, Republican primary is about uh, five weeks away, uh, maybe a little less. And um, uh, the battle has finally joined. You know, the, the, the race, Daniel Cameron, our attorney general, is, is the front runner and has been. Uh, Kelly Kraft, though, has really owned the airwave. He's been advertising for months. Um, and some of it's been positive. Some of it's been attacking Cameron. Um, and I, you know, I really think actually as, as the race is more on, 
her ads have gotten a lot sharper. Some of the ads that, that are on the air now, which I think Jared, we may have, um, we can, uh, you know, we can hear how sharp some of the attacks have gotten. And Joe, as you said, Daniel Cameron, his campaign is now on the air. And I think we have that as well. He's chosen to open up his ad campaign with a positive message and his super PAC that's supporting him is on the air and they're touting his endorsement from Donald Trump. Jared, maybe we should play a couple of the ads and then maybe we can, uh, Maybe we can kick it around on on strategy as we sort of enter the home stretch. So we'll start with Kelly Craft's latest ad. This deals with um, woke ideologies invading our schools. That's how I'll tee it up. Schools are under attack. Woke bureaucrats parachuting in to hijack our children's future. I know my CRT. Forcing woke ideology into the classroom. I'm Gracie. <clears throat> I'm a she, her. It's immoral. I'm Kelly Craft, and as governor, I'll dismantle the Department of Education and start fresh. Because these are our children, not the government's. So that was from that was from Kelly Craft. Um, obviously, she's picking up on an issue that's become a major issue for Republicans, and that's the idea of what the heck's going on in our schools and. Um, obviously, we, we talked a little bit about it here in Kentucky because of the education commissioner and his some of the things he's done with the pronoun guidance. And there were some bills in the legislature. You know, the only thing from a strategic perspective about that ad that I if I were in her shoes, I probably would have done differently is I would have potentially singled out Bashir and, and the Democrats for their policies in Kentucky. Uh, it, it had a very national feel. I mean, that, that conversation is going on in the Republican Party nationally. So I might have. I might have actually mentioned the governor in it, uh, but otherwise, I think I think that's that's going to be a resonant issue for her. Jared, do we have um, Daniel Cameron's first ad? Because I I do think one of the key differences in strategy here is Kraft went sort of more national with the messaging, but but Daniel went right at Bashir on a big issue that's been on the minds of of uh, conservative Christian voters uh, since it happened during the pandemic. The very first freedom in our Constitution is the freedom of religion. But Governor Bashir ignored the Constitution and shut churches down. So I took him to court and fought to reopen churches so we could come together for worship. Kentucky deserves a governor who respects our laws and our freedoms. A governor who knows only liberty creates prosperity and only faith can keep us strong. I'm Daniel Cameron. That's exactly the kind of governor I will be. Yeah, Daniel is. Um, you know, his, I will say I, I liked his ad, and I thought it was it was well done. It's not exactly in the zeitgeist of the of the campaign as we have been covering it so far, or or in the matrix of issues that have kind of dominated the conversation so far. But it is very authentic to Daniel. Um, you know, he he is authentically uh, a man of faith, and his wife is. A faithful person and, and their their Christianity and their faith is really central and core to who they are. And so I think I think one of the things I like about this ad is just, you know, it, it reminds people about who Daniel is and why they like him so much and how authentic he is and really unafraid, you know, to, to talk about how how his faith is central to, to who he is as a public servant. I my anticipation is that this will run for some period of time, but they'll probably wind up pretty quickly pivoting into some of the more uh, hot topic issues, you know, where uh, whether it's the attacks on him regarding policing or energy or 
um, you know, other attacks that he may level against other candidates. I, but, but, but to me, this was, this was pretty authentic, Daniel. I don't know what you guys thought, but I, but I thought it was a, a pretty well shot and, and well executed ad. Kevin. Yeah. I thought these were both really good ads and, you know, from a political watcher perspective, I'm glad the ad wars kind of heating up here in Kentucky. It, it'll be fun to watch uh, as this uh, primary race continues. Uh, that, that ad from attorney general Cameron, Scott, I like what you said. I, I it also does exactly what we've been saying they need to do. It attacks governor Bashir head on, and it shows at the time Daniel beat him. He took him to court and he won. It, it touts Daniel's record of accomplishment as attorney general, um, whereas maybe Ambassador Kraft's ad you know, has to talk about what you will do, um, where Daniel can rely on what he has done. And, and I think, like you said, it is authentic to himself. Um, but that that uh, woke CRT ad in school, it is it is memorable. I, you know, you got the audio here because we're a podcast only. Go watch the ad. Uh, it, it has memorable visuals uh, of, of bureaucrats literally parachuting into a school that I, I think is going to resonate and, and be memorable, maybe is one of the more memorable ads of this whole campaign. Well, and it's not just a theory. I mean, obviously, we've, we've had the conversation on this show before. Uh, I mean, I mean, this policy debate is going on in the Commonwealth of Kentucky about um you know, this sort of ideology in our schools and, and, and flowing from the, the top bureaucracy. In fact, um, the superintendent of education, uh, Jason Glass, responded via statement to Kelly Craft's ad. I mean, he's not, by the way, he's not supposed to be a political actor. Right, right. And 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 yet he he jumped out with a statement attacking Kelly Craft. By which, name. By name, which, you know, candidly, um, I think is out of line. She didn't mention him in the ad. And uh, and and he 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 sort of wants it both ways. He wants to be viewed as some nonpartisan education bureaucrat, but he also wants to put out statements in the context of a Republican primary for governor. And so I I really do think the net effect of that is going to be to draw him even more into this campaign and even closer to Andy Bashir, who obviously, you know, engineered the board that, that put him in office. Sean, you made some uh, little waves on that t- tweet today, I think. Yeah, I mean, I just I think that this is going to be a narrative that continues through the general election uh, is about the role that uh, Jason Glass has played in in uh, with the Department of Education, with the Board of Education, with um, and how Andy Bashir is has, you know, his first act as governor was to wipe out the existing Board of Education and a point it's, it was a campaign promise that he made was that he was going to on day one install a new board of education and on day two that uh, they were going to appoint a new board of education so um that would would then create a, a, a commissioner or establish a commissioner that would represent his values and his agenda in our schools and so i don't think it's much in dispute that this is andy Bashir's guy um at the that holds this position and is and is running this office it just is it seems weird to me that you know a few weeks ago the governor tried running away from Jason Glass um which we uh, some of us saw on Twitter the uh, the Republican Governors Association did a little ad uh, about that saying that it was interesting that the governor didn't want to take credit for something that he he actually did uh but i mean th- this this was this was a a guy that was hired by a board of all Democrats that the governor appointed. And, and, you know, I think there are actually some real legal questions uh, not to get too, you know, 
in the weeds here, but I think that there's some real questions about, you know, there are certain rules in Kentucky state law about how boards are constituted and that they have to represent a, a diverse viewpoint and, and the match the makeup of the state. Not sure that a board of all Democrats accurately represents the people of the Commonwealth of Kentucky. For a lot of things that have been said yeah, about I, former governor Bevin, I, I know that's what some action he took with the university of Louisville board was to, to, yeah. was, to was to make that racially as well as politically yeah. uh, representative. To rectify what Steve Bashir did, which was not appoint enough Hispanics or Latinos to the board, as well as um, the partisan makeup of the board. I mean, this is this is a Bashir family tradition is to play around with these boards this way and uh, hand out board seats like candy. And uh, I think that I think that uh, in this instance, the governor is going to re- regret having not been more thoughtful about how to how, how to handle this. It'll be interesting to see whether, um, and, and, and you mentioned, Joe, we have Alan Keck, uh, one of the Republican candidates coming on. We'll have a special episode dropping Friday. Um, but, you know, I, it's, I asked him during our talk today, is education a topic that you hear most often on the campaign trail? And he actually said, no, it's not, um, which I, I found interesting because, um, you know, you might get the impression that, that it's coming up all the time. I, I'll just be curious to see how this topic um unfolds over the course of a general election, will it be one of the top two or three issues? And, you know, will the Republicans choose to make it the core of their argument against Bashir's reelection? I think there's some evidence out there that they might. Um, and, and do they see that as the pathway through him, um, you know, facing facts, Bashir's got a pretty high approval rating. Um, he's obviously managed a number of crisis situations. He's, you know, obviously in the news this week, um, managing, uh, you know, our reaction collectively to this shooting. And, and so what he's known for is, is one thing. And then you have these policy issues, uh, this and a couple of others are another thing. And so, you know, as a strategic matter, um, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the Republicans make the choice to, to really, to, to make this the, you know, the rock they stand on is why you should replace an incumbent governor. Incumbent governors don't lose very often in the United States lately. And, uh, and so, you, but you really have to find something that, that is just visceral for the voters of that state and, and puts them on, on the totally opposite side of where their leadership is. This education issue strikes me as it's got real possibilities for the Republicans and as they, as they try to make that argument, it may not be the only thing, but, but it's certainly, I think, quite likely should be part of the of the narrative that they'll have to build, which, by the way, will be expensive and will take a while to build it. This is not going to be something you put out a press release and call it a day. It's going to it's going to take resources to drive the message. And it looks like we're going to get the next scorecard on this just this week. Uh, there's a Fox 56 Emerson poll that's scheduled to be released tomorrow night at 10 p.m. tomorrow, Thursday. Um, I, it looks like it was conducted earlier this week, so it might not actually resonate or, or catch up uh, to what these new ads are. But some of these uh, education topics we've been talking about for a while now, it, it'll see how they're connecting with the, the Republican primary voter. Well, this is this is poll's going to be it. We haven't had a public poll in a while. Right. And the last, know, the, last one yeah, was the last, January. Yeah, the, the last round of public polling came before most of the ad traffic that's gone on in the Republican primary and certainly came before the legislative and some of the news that came out of that. So a lot of things have transpired 
So it'll be interesting to see. Has Kelly Craft closed the gap on Daniel? Is the race closer than it was back in January? Has Andy Bashir's image changed, improved, degraded at all because of you know of what's going on in the state on a number of fronts? So th- this is actually uh, this is going to get a ton of attention just because we've had really kind of a lack of information and data over the last several weeks of a public nature that that we've had to chew on over this race. Do we know who the pollster is, Kevin? Uh, Emerson. You said Emerson College. Emerson College. I don't know who the. I guess they, I don't know if they sponsored or do they actually do it. I'm not sure. I guess I, the reason I'm asking this question is in terms of apples to apples, and you know, so often it's better to have, even if a poll is not necessarily all that accurate, if from a tracking perspective to know what direction you're moving in, and not knowing yeah. how their methodology will compare with something from like three months ago, you know, from the last one that was done, is it? Let's be curious to see if you know what kind of weight anyone puts into it after it comes out, because I would think that. This thing being sort of like out of nowhere can be easily dismissed if you want it to be dismissed, Sean. Yeah, my under, my understanding it's 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 a serious survey. It's been commissioned by uh, Fox Fifty Six in Lexington ahead of their debate that they're going to host, um, and uh, it, it's it's there was a release that was put out tonight or some some information put out. Tonight. It's a serious poll. Nine hundred li- very likely uh, Republican primary voters with a margin of error of plus or minus three point two. So. The Emerson, by the way, just as it relates to the to the quality of the polling, they are an A minus rated pollster by five thirty eight in the pollster ratings that they did coming out of the twenty twenty two elections. This is a legitimate organization, a legitimate poll, and so yeah. you know, I think this data this data you know be pretty instructive, and, and obviously we'll get it and chew on it and analyze it on the pod next week. As a former this reporter, ain't, this ain't like that old. This, this ain't like that old bluegrass poll that used to be tossed out every now and then. Do we know anybody involved in that? Oh, there were some reporters who were involved in that bluegrass poll. I mean, obviously, just. What are they even doing I was about now? to bring it up myself. What I was about to bring this now? up. I was telling you that I, as as the victim of a, of a you know, being laserized from several politicians after I would reveal whatever, you know, uh, illegitimate mm-hmm. results I was sharing. Anyway, tracking is sometimes uh, it valuable. So we'll see what this says uh, when the poll comes out. But that's that's great you know, breaking news there, Kevin. I appreciate that. And and I don't know. I mean, any, any predictions on where we're going to – I mean, you would think that uh, – Scott, I would just say this. I'll, I'll, since I'm asking the question, I'll answer it first. Um, <laughs> you would think that because Kelly Craft and uh, and this, this pack that has been attacking Daniel Cameron has been up – for what a month or two, that that has to have some impact. I, I, you would think there'd be any movement at all would have to be it to, in in her favor. Oh well, look. I mean, I don't know what the poll's going to say, but just as a as a matter of campaign metrics, if you look at what's going on on the air, total spending uh, from I think Kelly started late December, right after Christmas. Um, everything on the air. I mean, she has run several thousand gross ratings points of television, radio, direct mail. I've gotten at least two big glossy mailers at my house. I've heard from other people that have gotten lots of mail, digital. I mean, I mean, they, they have run the full boat of, of uh, surround sound advertising on Republican primary voters. It, it would be surprising to me if that has not had some statistically measurable impact on this race. That having been said, she started at zero, basically. And Daniel, uh, you know, he's a bona fide celebrity in the Republican Party. So, you know, he started at a very, very high level in terms of his own name ID and in terms of how Republicans felt about him. And so she had to spend those resources to catch up. I do believe she is firmly ensconced in second place. 
and I do believe it is quite likely these ads have had a statistically measurable impact on the margin. Whether she has caught fully up with Daniel or not, I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, but but I think if if, if you were analyzing that only the only fair analysis would be to conclude joe to your point that that this level of advertising has has had to have done something particularly when you consider it's been happening in a total vacuum no one else has been on the air at all except for her until the last few days not that you're i mean you're not involved in any of the campaign scott but uh, even though these there's been a, a very few uh, public polls out what kind of polling does a campaign do to what extent are they aware of what's happening right now, generally speaking? Yeah, great question. Well, I mean, there'd be a couple of different kinds of surveys, and some of it may be resource dependent. You know, some some campaigns just don't have the money to, to poll a ton. Polling's expensive. High-quality polling is not cheap. That's number one. Number two, you know, the kind of polling we get publicly is kind of horse race polling. You know, what's your image? What's the head-to-head? But the kind of polling that the campaigns would be doing that would be most useful to them is message testing. So if, like, say you were Daniel Cameron, and you, you know, he went on the air, you know, obviously uh, this week. But in the run up to to shooting ads and then putting them on the air, you would do some polling and say, um, if I told you this, how would you feel about it? If I told you that, how would you feel about it? Does this message make you more or less likely to vote for me? So you would see the campaigns doing quite a bit of message testing to make sure their ads are actually dialed in to what they think is going to be effective with the segment of voters that they think they need to reach. So I would suspect given the level of resources that she has invested in paid advertising craft has probably done by far the most polling, because the one thing you don't want to do in a campaign is fly blind. If you're going to spend millions of dollars on paid advertising, you know, why in the world wouldn't you spend another 20 or 30 grand on a poll to, to give you some guidance on how to, how to craft that advertising. And then in an ongoing way, is my advertising, having a measurable impact on the electorate. So we put this ad out in order to attract more of this kind of voters. Well, then, Joe, you would follow up with polling to see if those kinds of voters actually responded the way that you thought. So polling for campaigns is really much more of an instrument to determine future actions. Polling like Emerson that we're going to get is really, you know, more for, for us just as a horse race, snapshot, punditry, totally two totally different kinds of instruments. Does the polling usually affect um – contributions does do the, the are the supporters either um uh you know rallied or discouraged when they see how their candidate is doing and does that have a, a net effect on whether or not they're going to give any more and i've been around a lot of campaigns in a lot of states I, I don't think i've ever been around politics in a state that is as crazy for polling and rumors of polling as the state of kentucky i mean people <laughs> like the politicos in this state go crazy not just about polls we can see but about polls that they imagine you know are happening i mean it's it's crazy you talk to people and they're like i heard a guy who had a cousin who was walking down the street whose mailman told him that his sister was at the beauty parlor and they heard there was a poll that showed and, and you're just like my god everybody calm down so Yes, I think what what you'll see, you know, in the Emerson situation, let's just say, again, we have no idea. We haven't seen it. Let's just say Kelly has closed the gap with Daniel. You know, you would see then a campaign that was closing, tout it and say, we were here and now we're here. It's working. And so, you know, come with us. You know, we've got the momentum. Or if Daniel had been maintaining a large lead, you know, his campaign would probably say, look, all these false attacks have backfired and you know, I'm going to be the nominee. So you'll see the campaigns position themselves a little bit based on the narrative that you would derive 
from the numbers. And, you know, let's say one of the, the other candidates in the lower tier, let's say, you know, I don't know, let's say Alan Keck, who we're having on the show. Let's say he were unexpectedly at 10%. You know, you if you're in his camp, you'd say, look here, I've got, you know, I've spent no money on advertising and I'm rising because my message is the best and it's resonating. And if we raise more money, you know, we'll be able to, to do more with it. So absolutely, you know, depending on your, you know, geo political position in the, in the matter, um, you will definitely use these things for fundraising purposes to either excite your own political supporters or to depress the supporters of the other campaigns. You know, you'll use it uh, if you think it's positive for you to motivate your volunteers. Uh, so, yeah, these kinds of little data points do find their way into the into the bloodstream of the of the internal and external communications of these efforts. Moving on to some other national news now, and uh, let's go to just to our south. And I have to ask all of you, and I don't know who wants to raise their hand first here, about the move by the Tennessee legislature in the first place. Before we even go in terms of what the reaction to it and this the cause celeb of the Tennessee Three and, and what's been happening here, and 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 really they've they've become sort of a a phenomenon under themselves. I think they're going to be on Dancing with the Stars next. <laughs> but uh, is that still like? What? Is that even a privilege anymore on dancing? Does anybody watch that show? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think Is they've that... replaced. I think they've replaced that in like the uh, the show lineup with uh, the masked singer. I yeah. think that oh, is that what it is? The, the... They'll, they'll be like the the, the the Tennessee Three, you know, trio. There. Who was the Tiger King lady who definitely didn't kill her husband? Carol Baskin. Carol Baskin. Yes. She's the last person I remember being on Dancing with the Stars, and she was I... in like a leopard print thing so well i'm sorry for for no, George. Josie doesn't even know what the tiger king is he thinks that that's like some sort of indiana jones villain from like the first movie <laughs> so anyway in the first place kevin i'll just ask you was regardless of whether it was constitutionally or even uh morally accurate for for the legislature to, to kick these people out for what they did and disrupting the 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 action on the floor and 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 encouraging these protesters to kind of take over the floor of the Tennessee House was it a uh, a a wise or unwise move in the first place to sort of invite this controversy? Well, I think you have to go back first to that day, and it looked like I mean we only saw video and news reports. It looked like a really aggressive. You use the word takeover, takeover of the Tennessee State Capitol. Um, I mean. I think it, for the most part, thank God, stayed relatively nonviolent. But, I mean, that that is something that is not common, and I don't think it should be brushed over easily. Uh, that there was some massive um, movement out of order uh, in, in Tennessee. Um, as, it, as it turns to backlash at the same time, I think that from, a, from a PR perspective, I think that story could have been a day, and now the story is two weeks long. Um, if you could have just let it, let it happen. And when you've got a majority and a working majority, you just, you just keep on going. No one would have ever known the names of these three, three, uh, Tennessee lawmakers. Um, and you know, Republicans probably could have kept on doing whatever they were doing. And now they have to deal with, uh, Chuck Schumer and Joe's friend, uh, Senator Ralph Warnock, who are asking the uh, DOJ to investigate a civil rights violation. Nice. By the way, double whammy. (laughs) <laughs> he got you with the Ralph, and he called him your friend. <laughs> I am. Um, I've been. I've been considering this Tennessee situation. I mean, you know, when these things happen, and when these things happen, it's like uh, in the moment, 
you know, what would you have done in the moment? And then, you know, a few days later, you see the net result of it. I mean, what's the net result of this? These guys were expelled. Then they were immediately reinstated and turned into national celebrities. So, I mean, my guess is if the Republicans had to do it over again, they would just say, eh, maybe, maybe we should have left it, it alone. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's not worth it. I, I will I will say this. I, I've had to comment on a few situations in Congress over my years as a pundit and uh, about, you know, should a member be removed uh, from for saying something outrageous or doing something outrageous and – I have almost always fallen back on my bedrock belief in voters really should be the ultimate arbiters of who represents them. And, um, you know, in this case, I understand the impulse here. I mean, obviously they were breaking the rules and they were, you know, um, sort of shutting down legislative business and and interrupting a legislative process where we heard those terms before. I mean, I, I get it. Like I, I understand the impulse, but at the same time, you know, they were sent there by voters. Voters put them there. And there may have been other ways to handle it. Censures, you know, reprimands of some kind, you know, don't break the rules or whatever. But but when you start expelling people from a legislative chamber that got there via a popular vote, I, it makes me uncomfortable because I don't like getting in between voters and their electoral choices. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, you know, I, I've not I'm just candidly, I have not followed this as much as I probably should have just because I've been following other things in the news. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing that I did see today is that uh, Donald Trump is going to Nashville, uh, maybe in response to this situation or as part of this to 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 say some things. And so. I'm he's sure gonna that, he's gonna say some things. That's for I'm sure. sure. That will that will help turn the temperature down. I, I I will say on these on this whole Tennessee situation. Remember, this whole thing was born of a mass shooting. Someone went to a Christian school and killed children and educators, and and for some reason, the National Democratic Party and the national media. Instead of focusing on the victims and the motive behind this shooting, uh, have de- have decided to turn, you know, these politicians into sort of the names we all know and the nationals. You know, this our focus here is on politicians and not on the victims. And I that also has made me mm-hmm. really unhappy and uncomfortable about this story. This the idea that you know we. We moved off of exploring whether this was a hate crime. What was the you know we, we don't we don't seem to care about that. We only seem to care about turning Democratic politicians into national rock stars when people seem to you know not care at all about these poor kids and their teachers and their and and their school officials that were shot. And so I just I don't know that that has also made me uncomfortable. I was also reading tonight that you know this whole circus. You know, that's been going on in the national media with this Tennessee three. Uh, while this was going on, the legislature actually passed a bill that the governor, Lee, there signed into law that I think dramatically increased funding and some requirements for school safety. So, like, they did something good there in the wake of the shooting. And these Tennessee three voted against it. Now, you know, like, has that been part of the national conversation? Because I just read it tonight. I hadn't heard it, but it's, I think it's in the Tennessee. And so, 
Um, I mean, it was House Bill 322. I'll just read from the Tennessean. House Bill 322 passed the House with bipartisan support in a vote of 95 to 4 after a lengthy debate. Justin Jones, Gloria Johnson, and Justin Pearson all voted against the bill because it doesn't address the root causes of school shootings. The bill uh, heightened school safety at both public and private schools and provided more funding. So, you know, I mean, I think if we're going to turn these people into national celebrities, why is it that they're voting against school safety measures when the whole root cause of this entire story was a shooting at a school? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I think on the uh, on the actual expulsion, I, you know, I don't know that I have a principled position on it. I personally hold the people I vote for to a high threshold, but you know, uh, should I, you know, I guess you know, in the end of the day, that's for the voters to decide. I will say, I do think the the Republicans down there should have seen this stunt coming. Um, you know, one of these representatives had a past history of throwing a, a cup of coffee in somebody's face. Another one, we, there was a video that went viral this week of him clearly changing his demeanor and accent. I mean, clearly these characters are not there to legislate. They're just these kind of like mob actors who are, you know, playing characters while, you know, just happening to sort of be in the legislative body. And so I, I don't know that there should have been any seriousness given to, to anything that they do. And, and it's sort of played right into their hand. Vice President Kamala Harris is now going to Nashville to visit these three people, not the families of the not the families who are murdered. That's what's crazy. That's what's crazy yeah. about this is that they've turned these folks into the you know the real victims here are the politicians. It, no, it, the real victims are the are the dead people. Yeah, and that's the real victim. But yet, but yet they it's like their culture is we we have to become the victims. Like everything about this is just it's upside down. They're not the victims. Yeah, they're politicians. The victims are the shooting victims the people who are dead and i just it just drives me crazy well they're also just remarkably disingenuous scott you mentioned the bill that just passed in tennessee we've already heard rumblings of this here in kentucky too of well the republicans don't do anything about this they don't do anything senate bill one and house bill one two three years ago were both school safety bills in kentucky that focused on these root cause issues of identifying you know, mental health issues within uh, our, our young children, providing funding for both school resources officers, but also uh, people within schools to I, to identify and help with uh, kids who may be in these sort of crises and, and on the verge of, you know, committing these horrific acts. So they th- that side and these actors, th- there are people who we disagree with on policy who are genuine in their approach to solving this problem. And there are folks like this who are disingenuous, who only wish to rile people up, who create these stunts, who do these sort of things that we saw in Tennessee. And we've seen, you know, following uh, mass shootings all the time, who want to make it about themselves, who want to fundraise off of this, who don't actually care about the victims. And, it, and it's just frankly disgusting to watch that they aren't every time these three get in front of a camera should say this isn't about me. But they aren't doing that. They want to be the celebrities they want this to be about them, and and frankly, it's just it's sad, but it's also sort of infuriating to watch. So, what's the does this does this last any longer here? Is this sort of the like I said, the cause celebrities? These, these these things usually last a week or two, and then they something else takes their place. Yeah, well, I mean, it's obviously part of this larger narrative that that you know spikes after we have these mass shootings. You know, we had one in Tennessee, we just had one obviously in Kentucky. 
And so, yeah, I mean, there'll be a national conversation about this whole issue and the people involved in it, um, you know, for, for more days. I mean, you know, I was talking to Caitlin Collins at CNN off the air a little bit tonight. She, she realized uh, interviewing Andy Bashir today that, you know, the Kentucky legislature is out and it won't be back until January unless he calls them into session. The difference in Tennessee is they're still there. And so, um, but from a policy perspective, you know, would, would Andy Bashir call the legislature in to do something? I, I don't know. I mean, uh, and so if he doesn't, you know, where does the conversation go from here? You know, I think, I think it sort of depends, Joe, on on what happens next in both states about about how the you know how the conversation unfolds from a policy nature. Certainly, I mean, what what could actually be done in Kentucky between now and next January? Well, not very much, unless the governor calls in the legislature. Talking a little bit about powers of of different uh, branches of government, whether it's uh, the General Assembly or the legislature in Tennessee choosing to to boot people out of office who've since been reappointed. Another uh, interesting development this past week is uh, AOC uh, saying that the, the Biden White House should simply ignore a federal judge's ruling. I mean, I, I'm kind of going back to, I don't know, maybe uh, the nullification crisis or something back in the 19th century where we're choosing whether or not to follow uh, actual law. Uh, meet, the, meet the new Confederates. They're the same as the old Confederates. They haven't even changed, their, they haven't even changed parties. She, so she says, uh, well, I guess we have some sound here from AOC, Jira, don't we? Yeah. Okay. Heard the news this afternoon, a couple hours ago. What did you think? Well, you know, I think um, rulings like this, and I think we've seen from the FDA and, and also from activity in Congress, that some of these rulings, there, I think we've been preparing and anticipating for there being these egregious overreaches um, by members of the judiciary appointed by a right-wing Republican Party, uh, whose goal for a very long time was to just pack these courts with partisan judges, often uh, often underqualified or completely unqualified for the, for their role. And so there has been thought, I believe, given to this. Senator Ron Wyden has already issued statements, uh, for example, advising what we should do in a situation like this, which I concur, which is that I believe that the Biden administration should ignore uh, this ruling. I think that we, you know, the courts have the legitimacy and they rely on the legitimacy of their rulings. And what they are currently doing is engaged in an unprecedented and dramatic erosion of the legitimacy of the courts. They, it, it is the justices themselves through the deeply partisan and unfounded nature of these rulings that are undermining their own enforcement. So you're saying the Biden. So basically what she's saying is if a Republican appoints a judge that does something I don't like, that makes them inherently unqualified and therefore we should ignore Anything they do. I mean, this is a recipe for the unraveling. I, I, honestly, the other day when Marjorie Taylor Greene said, well, we need a national divorce and everybody made fun of it and everybody went crazy about it. What is the difference yeah. in that and what AOC just said? Essentially, she is saying that a Democratic administration uh, should just ignore rulings from judges that she doesn't like. I mean, that that is calling for a national divorce. That's calling for. Hey, we're going to live in one country and you're going to live in another one. I mean, that what she said is bat guano crazy. And I just, you know, I mean, it, and it got a little bit of play out there. But I mean, imagine if Republicans you know, had gone out and said, 
you know, anything Ruth Bader Ginsburg says, we should immediately disagree with because she's a liberal and therefore she's illegitimate. And people would have gone crazy. And I don't know. She just gets away with it. You ex- you expect this kind of off the wall nonsense from AOC, but the fact that there is a senior United States Senator Ron Wyden also doing this, yeah, it's, it's insane. It's lawless. You know, good on the Biden administration for immediately saying no. We're going to listen to judges. I mean, we know that they don't have a great track record of you know constitutional and legal executive orders, but at least they you know aren't going to completely throw the institution away. What, what I think is like so fascinating about this is that, you know, the left in this country has really relied upon the courts to institute their views yes. on the rest of, of the country, flyover country. They, they've relied on the courts to, to do that for, I don't know, the last however many years that, that, that they have done that. And now all of a sudden, nope, <laughs> like they, they – it just all of a sudden they they just do not they just do not want that anymore. Um, and, and and again, like talk about the ruling all you want, talk about the specifics of the thing, but like there there are processes that these things are litigated by. Like we are a country of laws, not of AOC's opinions. Like it's well, it, it's 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 like that that for Democrats, there there are certain issues and ideas that essentially exist on a plane above the Constitution, above the laws, above the rule of law. And and obviously abortion is one of them. They've decided that abortion is an issue that should not be shackled by, inhibited by, or otherwise governed by our normal legal processes, whether that's the Supreme Court making a decision, whether it's a federal judge in Texas making a decision. If you're dealing with a case that has anything at all to do with abortion, then that shouldn't even exist in our court. It shouldn't be, they shouldn't be touched by human hands. You know, like there shouldn't be any, you know, it's like the, the, the government and the country and our, and our constitution doesn't exist as it relates to that particular matter. I mean, imagine if Republicans took that idea and ran with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to give you a list of things that Democrat judges are no longer like our laws and our judge, like they no longer apply to the following issue set. I mean, this is a recipe for total chaos, but you know, they seem to do it with a smile on their face and, and without a shred of shame in their heart. It's pretty shocking. The, the, the language she uses is also very interesting, too, that, that we packed these courts. No, no, no. It's we a went, single judge. We, it's we, a one judge. We also went through the <laughs> traditional confirmation process, right. just like you guys could have, just like how this has worked forever. Jo- wait, but, no, no, no. Not just like they could have, just like they are. Joe right. Biden. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. has had an amazing run of appointing judges to courts. I mean, they have appointed and confirmed. And by the way, if you've watched any of their confirmation hearings, if she's worried about people being qualified for their jobs, <laughs> Lord have mercy. Some of these people cannot answer basic law questions. But to her, a judge isn't qualified based on their knowledge of the law. They're only qualified based on their knowledge of her political opinion. And that's not a judge at all. That's no judge at all. I mentioned uh, the nullification crisis in South Carolina. So let's go ahead and stay in the, is it the Palmetto State? That's South Carolina? Yep. Oh, yes. You okay. got it. How about that? And let's go to your friend, Tim Scott, uh, friend of the pod, Scott. Friend of the pod, yeah. Uh, and in fact, I think we have, do we have some sound from when he was on the podcast here? This is because t- Tim Scott uh, began an exploratory committee for a 2024 presidential run on Wednesday. And Scott had talked to Scott about that earlier. So this was December of 2021. This conversation took place. Last question on the podcast. 
All right, last question. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I'm going to ask you this way. I know you I know you won't look past 2022 and you take nothing for granted. However, yes, sir. let me ask you this. Do you believe that a message like the one that you use is what the Republican Party needs in 2024 to recapture the White House? Desperately. Scott. Yeah, I mean, the message I was referring to is basically Tim Scott's the most optimistic man in American politics. I mean, he is relentlessly optimistic. You know, he doesn't describe the United States in apocalyptic tones or with hyperbole. He talks about this being a nation of opportunity. He says it's the GOP, the Grand Opportunity Party. I mean, he is just relentlessly an optimist because of his own life story. You know, where he came from, poverty, single mom, raised his grandfather, Pick cotton. I mean, he says, I, I went to cotton, from cotton to Congress in a generation. I mean, it, it is an inspiring life story about what's possible in America. So he, he just has this infectious optimism, and you juxtapose that against some of the other candidates and what they give you uh, in terms of their relentless negativity. I, I, I think he's going to stand out in this race because of that attitude. Whether there's a market for it enough to win, whether he can rise up in the polls, I don't know. But I, I know this. He's a gifted communicator. He's good on the stump. He's good in retail settings. And Tim Scott's one of the most beloved Republicans in the country. You put him in front of a crowd, people are going to like him, and they do like him. And so there's room for him in this race. But more importantly, there's there's room for his optimism and for, and for a forward-looking kind of campaign agenda that says, look, America is great. <laughs> we're, we're a great country. Uh, because of look, look what it can do for people, you know, with humble beginnings like mine. So I, I was glad that he came on the pot a while back and he did a terrific job. And, um, and I'm glad he's getting into this race because I think he, he's earned a spot in the race. And, uh, and, and he's one of the Republicans from a communications perspective, but we'll be better off the more he's out there. And he is firmly in a conservative mainstream. I know he is so popular on Capitol Hill. He was a leader on the generational tax reform. You don't have to worry about him on foreign policy issues. He is strong. I mean, he, he is willing to take a stand on these things. I mean, everything Scott said about his ability to communicate and his ability to resonate, he is just as strong on these hard and technical policy areas. I mean, he he brings an entire package. Again, whether that resonates, whether that you know message takes off i don't know but um he, he's a person that the republicans should want out front uh because he can deliver our message in the best possible way of course donald trump scott still dominates this conversation and i don't know uh, with recent developments uh, he, he was on tucker carlson's show on fox uh for was it the entire hour uh i kind of dropped in and out of, of all that and you know it, this this appears to be I don't know. I mean, when does that when do those dynamics change, if at all? Well, I mean, look, dynamics could change almost overnight. I mean, Donald Trump was was struggling a little bit and uh, uh, in the wake of the midterm. And then all of a sudden, uh, you know, he gets indicted by Alvin Bragg and now he's on top of the world again. And he's got three other big legal boulders coming his way. I don't know how that would impact his fortune. So things can actually change pretty quickly and momentum can be won and lost pretty quickly. Uh, we got a long way to go in this race, and um, I, I tend to think in large races, you know, in large candidate fields, what you're looking to do is, you know, your packaging and your, you know, your presentation, it, it just has to be different enough to catch attention from people who just kind of get bored by the same old stuff. 
I've always thought this was a danger for Trump. You know, it's the same old stuff time and again, time and again, time and again. In 2016, that was not the case. You know, 17, 18 candidates running. And if you thought of them as products on a shelf, you know, they all looked like they had the same wrapping and the same ingredients except for one. And Trump was the different one. Now, you know, it's a little stale. And you look at the rest of the field and and you wonder, like, who's going to who's going to look like they've got different packaging and ingredients here and 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 who can capture sort of the imagination of people who are just kind of looking for something new in politics. Tim Scott obviously has the ability to do that. I think Ron DeSantis can do that because of his style of governance in Florida. So we actually have a couple of candidates in this race that I think are capable of of um, changing the, the political dynamic that currently favors Trump, uh, but may not, and it may not always be the case. Uh, so um, I think some of the polling right now, frankly, in the primary is take it with a grain of salt. I think Trump's on a sugar high uh, from Republicans rallying around him on this indictment. Uh, it may not last uh, and other news stories may intervene. And, you know, some of these other candidates may, may impress people enough to, to rise up themselves. John? The, the other thing that I think is important, and, and I, I think we've talked about this in the past, but I think it's it's very important to keep this in mind, is that we are not a country or a party that decides who the nominee of the Republican Party is going to be based on some national poll. There's a process that we go through others, like the primary process. And so Iowa's first, New Hampshire, then South Carolina. And so, you know, with the native son of South Carolina running, uh, as well as Nikki Haley, we shouldn't forget. Uh, you know, th- there's a there there's a lot of time left between now and then, and and I think that you know campaigns, it's all about momentum. And I think that if if someone comes into Iowa and beats Trump, I mean, it or beats him in South Carolina. I mean, Joe Biden's campaign was dead until South Carolina this last time around. So, like, I I just think it's really important that we keep in mind that we don't we don't decide who the nominee of a, a major political party is going to be based on some national poll that based upon what the primary process is uh, that's going to unfold here in the next few years. If nothing else, Tim Scott, what you have to love about him is he confounds and enrages Democrats and political reporters. I mean, whenever he pops up in the news, whether it's on police reform which, by the way, he had worked diligently to craft a bipartisan compromise and got right down to the point where it looked like it was going to pass, only to have the Democratic Party decide we cannot allow Tim Scott to get credit for fixing this issue. So they filibustered it. Jim Crow Jim filibustered. Crow filibustered. Yeah, Jim Crow filibustered. <laughs> exactly. Or whether it's at the Republican National Convention when he pops up and gives an amazing speech, which spawns all sorts of insane fact-checking, you know, Washington Post claiming, you know, he didn't really grow up poor. His grandfather didn't really pick cotton. I mean, it was crazy. So Tim Scott, they, he call, I mean, he, he causes heads to explode in politics. They don't know how to handle Tim Scott. So if you're a Republican, so you're a Republican it's like, you know, uh, what, what am I looking for here in this campaign? I, you know, one of the great things is how do you, how do you throw a knuckleball at the opposing team or they just can't figure out a way to hit Tim Scott's always been that guy. They've never been able to figure out how to coexist with Tim Scott because he blows up all of their narratives. He blows up all of their talking points about race and culture in America. He blows up all their talking points about education and criminal justice reform. 
he blows up all their talking points about the nature of what it means to be a Republican. I mean, Tim Scott's a nice guy. He's a good guy. He's an optimistic guy. He's a hopeful guy. I mean, he is very hard to demonize. And so, I don't know, I just like him being around because I can, I mean, the number of total meltdowns that is going to occur on Twitter and in the press and in the Democratic Party over him over the next few months will be a sight to behold. Well, we, we, we know, you know, the Washington Post, when they did that story about Tim Scott and, you know, whether or not he was actually a generation or two removed from from uh, his family picking cotton, we know that uh, that wasn't true because Joe Biden was in the cotton fields picking cotton himself uh, back those years ago. Good try, Sean. <laughs> I tried. I tried. You tried. I, sorry, I had a Joe Arnold moment. You know, that, that's that's just unfair. We are all going to have a uh, Scott Jennings moment uh, this coming Friday when the uh, flyover country with Scott Jennings and the first in a series of gubernatorial Republican primary candidate uh, panels begins. The first one, Scott, will be Somerset Mayor Alan Keck. That's right. Alan Keck stopped by the studio. Uh, Full disclosure, we did it this morning (laughs) on Wednesday morning, and uh, we're going to release it Friday. And we had him for about an hour, and I have to say, I think this conversation is going to raise a few eyebrows. I like Alan Keck. I've known him for for a while, and uh, uh, I think he's been a, a, you know, kind of a – a breath of fresh air of, of, uh, authenticity, uh, you know, in our politics and, you know, he doesn't have the most money. I think he's a lower tier candidate in terms of the polling right now. And, uh, but, but you know, he gets some buzz from people he speaks to. You can tell he's an authentic guy and, and he's got an interesting message. It's not, you know, he's not, he doesn't speak in pablum. You know, I hate politicians that they're constantly in pablum mode and Alan is the opposite of that. So I think you're going to like the conversation. He, it's interesting things to say. Took a few shots. Some of his opponents threw a few elbows, uh, but was a good sport about all the questions we had. And uh, uh, he's the first we're going to do. Uh, uh, Ambassador Kraft is coming by next week. Uh, we've also got uh, Ryan Quarles and Daniel Cameron who are slated to come by. And so and we may add a few more uh, candidates as well. And so we're grateful for the uh, candidates coming by to talk to us. And I think um, I think they'll be of great hope, uh, help to uh, Republican voters who are sorting out their choices because, um, you know, we really wanted to give these folks a chance to to uh, in something more than in soundbite form, present their ideas and, and, you know, have a conversation that could inform. Like, who are you as a person? You know, what kind of a person are we getting here? And I, I, think, I think I think we really achieved that with the Keck interview. That'll do it for me. Anything from any closing thoughts, any scenes, reds, or herds before we go? Gentlemen? Seen, red, or heard. Boy, I tell you. I, I will say, uh, just as a closing note, uh, to, to take it back to the top of the show, I do think um, watching Governor Bashir's interview with Caitlin Collins on CNN would be a good thing. I thought she did an excellent job. Um, I was reacting to it sort of real time tonight as it was airing live for the first time. Uh, but I, I just wanted to commend Caitlin for her interview. I wanted to commend the producers of the nine o'clock show tonight for the way they put, I was on for the first 40 minutes of the show. I thought the way that they put the interview together, the, the panel, you know, I was on there to talk about Louisville. They had a, a criminologist on there. Shimon Prokopez came by. He's sort of, you know, become the expert on covering these kinds of shootings for CNN. I just thought the whole thing was incredibly well done. So if you, if you, if you have a chance, go on social media, Watch the governor. He was really good tonight, I thought, and my heart goes out to him for what he and, and the other other people involved in this are going through. 
I thought Caitlin was terrific if you can watch it on rerun. So that's my scene, Red Hurt. CNN tonight, the, the 9 o'clock show was great, and, and Andy Bashir, um, you know, I've known him for a long time, and my, my heart goes out to him for a I – mean, he had to call the widow of Tommy Elliott and, and tell her what had happened, and I just uh, – my heart was broken for him because I know he lost a close friend. And though uh, so we're on opposite sides of things a lot um, – um, you never want to see somebody that you know and that, that you have respect for uh, go through something like this. So anyway, that's mine. Uh, I'll add on just very quickly to Scott's too. We've we've mentioned the officer, uh, Nick Wilt, who is still in the hospital seemingly in, in critical condition still. Um, the Louisville Metro Police Foundation has a donation uh, or a fundraiser set up. I just went and looked just on the Facebook post. $110,000 raised already. Um, from 2,000 people. But if you just go to LMPD's uh, page or the Louisville Metro Police Foundation page, easy way to donate to help cover seemingly some of either the expenses or, or you know, things that, that will come because of his injuries. Uh, again, hoping still that, that he pulls through. But uh, $110,000 in a few days, really an amazing showing from the community. So I would encourage people to, to check that out, and if you can, uh, throw a donation. And certainly these... Uh these families are having, you know, obviously uh, life-altering, uh, you know, consequences for yeah. each of them. And I, I believe that many of those funds are going for for all of them. So we'll keep yeah. all of those in our in their and our prayers as we as we move forward. Kevin, Sean, Scott, Jared, I'm Joe Arnold. Thanks for listening, and thanks across the country for your thoughts and your prayers for all of us here in Louisville here on Flyover Country. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.